Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Matthew. Episode 232, recorded for the week of October 18th, 2023. The Cloud Pod is tired of talking about new instance types. Hey, Ryan. Hey there. The astute listeners may have noticed that uh, Justin isn't here with us today. <laughs> yeah. No, no, Matt. But last week was just an episode yeah. with those two guys, so it's, there's no real infighting. We do plan on getting back together at some point. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we can do like the what was the the Twilight thing, the, the team vampire, team werewolf, or whatever. <laughs> Vote for your favorite. Yeah, no, don't do that. Vote for your favorite pair. Yeah, I kind of like the episodes. You just with just uh, just the two of us, either me and you, or me and Justin, or. I haven't done one with just Matt yet, but like they have a different kind of feel to them. Yeah. Know, more chatty. And... Anyway, all right, so we got not a whole lot of news today, but we'll start off with some general news. Uh, why AMD's upcoming chips won't be the savior AI startups are hoping for. And this was a, a blog post uh, around the new uh, Instinct MI300A chips which have been touted as an alternative to NVIDIA's H100. Um, people are claiming that it's not as easy to use those chips. The startup tweeted about using the new AMD chips that it's been working on for a few years and said that most startups uh, who would want to switch would have to throw out their own code and start from scratch. I'm, I'm not entirely sure about that. Um, I mean, NVIDIA does have a 20-year head start on, on CUDA. It's kind of the industry go-to. It's like the... Uh, the, the Nescafe of coffees or the, you know, the <laughs> Teslas of electric cars. It's just what people yeah. think of when they, when they want to use AI. But um, AMD's new chip does have some advantages. Uh, it combines CPUs and the GPUs on the same uh, die with, this, with a fabric connecting in two and shared memory, which is uh, super efficient and super low power. And uh, NVIDIA does plan on doing the same thing. So obviously they're on the right track. It's kind of wish they'd get together and, and figure something out that works for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's 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 interesting how complex these have become, right? When it used to just be sort of you had optimized at like the computer level and maybe at the OS level, but now the workloads are so specific because they're so demanding, and then power is also very challenging. So that's it's kind of neat. I'm kind of glad I don't have to deal with it much. Yeah, and I think. PyTorch is the is the go to right now for training large language models, and that's been working with CUDA for years. And I, mm-hmm. I'm I'm sure decent AMD support will get built in to support this new hardware. And so I, I think you know if you're using abstractions like PyTorch in the work you do with AI, then it's not going to end up being much harder to, to use AMD or NVIDIA. But they are but they they are behind in some aspects. I think they're kind of ahead of the game with with putting all this stuff on a single a single uh, die. Uh, which NVIDIA haven't been doing yet, but they're way behind the game on things like support for Int 8 and Int 4, which uh, NVIDIA's had support for for years. So it's they're all kind of tending to the same place, I think. But, uh, yeah, I'm kind of excited to, to see the performance of this new chip. All right. Next, Amazon will use Microsoft 365 cloud productivity tools in a $1 billion mega deal. Amazon has reported he committed $1 billion um, to use M365 Cloud Productivity, uh, which is for over a million of its corporate and frontline workers. It's pretty crazy. Uh, Amazon is upgrading from their traditional Microsoft Office software and 
to the cloud productivity suite, probably because Microsoft stopped supporting it, <laughs> would be my guess. <laughs> um, and I, it notes that Amazon had uh, re- was reluctant to upgrade previously, which I, you know, like it's interesting. I think, uh, you know, normally wouldn't report on like an internal business dealing, but it's one of those things. It's, it's so comp the cloud relationship with these companies is so complex. Like it's kind of interesting how you have to use your competitor software for certain aspects. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm surprised they haven't worked on their own office suite. They could have taken some open sourcing and, and made it their own, I guess. I imagine if like work docs and, and their, their email offering had had any traction, um, they probably would have done that, but it's, you know, I imagine it's one of those things where, if they're, they can pay Microsoft, you know, a billion dollars or they could spend $2 billion to build their own, you know, like, and it's like, meh. And then people are just going to complain, right? No matter which one you pick, it's going to not have what you want or not have the flexibility. So. Yeah. I'm not surprised they didn't go with, with uh, Google. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's really the two, two choices, right? Like you can, there's smaller little homegrown stuff where there's G Suite now workspaces i think or or office 365 m365 so yeah i wonder what the hesitancy was in upgrading i mean really that i guess the primary difference is just local local apps running on the machine versus mm-hmm. cloud apps maybe it's yeah, maybe I mean, like data concerns or it's a lot right like if you think about all those documents all those emails is now going to be residing on essentially azure systems right and so it's like <laughs> Uh, are, you know, are, are they worried about corporate espionage? Are they worried about, you know, data privacy and, you know, I, I get the concern. I, I, it would be very interesting to see if something came out of that because it'd be hard to f- detect and hard to enforce. Yeah. Some irony in Amazon uh, complaining that other people have, have data that they could use uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. against them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. All right, on to AWS news in general. Um, uh, announcing the ability to enable AWS Systems Manager by default for all EC2 instances in an organization. You can now enable Systems Manager and configure permissions for all EC2 instances in an org that's being configured um, with AWS organizations with a single action using default host management configuration. The feature provides a method to help customers ensure core systems manager capabilities such as patch manager, session manager, and inventory are available for all new and existing instances. Uh, default host management configuration is recommended for all EC2 customers and offers a simple, scalable process to standardize the availability of system manager tools. Oh, thank heavens. Uh, this is one of those things if you're you know offering the cloud service the rest of your business, you want this to be a checkbox instead of you know trying to do organization cloud stacks to, to make sure this is enabled in every, every different sub account and everything you're doing. It's, it's much nicer to manage it this way. And I love these features where they're making that configurable down to the, the specific, you know, components of the service. Like the inventory, for instance, is a, it's a powerful one that, you know, in previous lives, like I, I had left off, right. Cause I was worried about costs and doing all these things. But then when you get a zero day vulnerability and you want to run, you know, some sort of reporting to see what you got out there. It's if you have something like this, that's ubiquity sort of gathering this in the background, you have that data set to leverage and it makes your response so much easier. So I'm a big proponent of 
of having these things turned on by default and then maintaining that data set appropriately. You don't need to keep it forever. Yeah, I know Google has Patch Manager and, and some of those other supporting things, but I, I really miss working with uh, AWS and having Systems Manager, especially the, the agent mm-hmm. or remote remote scripts. It's so useful. Yeah. It really is, you know, like it's the interface was clunky and I, you know, had definite like complaints, but now that I don't have access to it at all using primarily GCP, I miss it terribly. Like an, almost enough to deploy my own service. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, like. <laughs> so. Yeah, I thought the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. CloudWatch launches out of the box alarm recommendations for AWS services. CloudWatch, it's providing alarm recommendations and alarm configurations for key vended metrics, along with the ability to download pre-filled infrastructure as code templates for these alarms. Hooray! It initially supports 19 services and will expand from there. This is cool. That's cool. Not a single yeah. mention of AI either, which, which you know is probably driving this on. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I bet you're right. That's funny. Well, I mean, do you need AI? Like, I bet you, like, you know... Those 19 services, do you, there's probably millions of configurations in CloudWatch for the same thing. You know, slightly different names for, for variables and alarms, but otherwise they're exactly the same because there's, there's so many things that are so consistent across managing, you know, when these services, if you think about compute, you're always going to have sort of alarms for thresholds for CPU utilization or usage of your um, on-demand or CPU demand credits for for the T-Series, you know, so many of these things are just sort of like table stakes a lot. So it's really nice to see that they have these easier to implement. Yeah, I like how you can download um, infrastructure as code to build mm-hmm. these things too. It re- reminds you a lot of the, the Google console where you can, any action you can perform in the UI, you can get a copy of the either the command line mm-hmm. or some infrastructure as code to yeah. achieve the same thing, which is, which is great. It's really so. nice. And it really helps, you know, like I like, that's the, you know, that's the one thing I go to the UI for is for if I don't understand the, how a service is constructed, right. Or orchestrated, like you go through and you, the UI is that they presented in a human readable thing and then, you know, but doesn't scale. So having that cake and eat it too is pretty fantastic. I love it. I, I love that this is becoming more and more popular. Are you a big user of uh, cloud shell or, or not so much? No, I find I don't use cloud shell um, mostly because I like, um, my local environment and I haven't really put in the work to sort of merge the two. You can, I just haven't. Um, and so like I, I, I have a, a development container that I, you know, I, I have leveraging all of my stuff on a local workstation. Oh, nice. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's more of the fuddy duddy in me than, than anything else, you know, new, new tricks. It doesn't, but you know, I would say that there's an actual need for it, but it, so I'd rather there be a cloud shell, even if I don't use it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty useful sometimes. Uh, introducing recover into existing instance for AWS Elastic Disaster Recovery. You can now recover into existing instances instead of spinning up no EC2 instances with AWS Ex- Elastic Disaster Recovery. That's, that's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, DRS minimizes downtime and data loss with fast, reliable recovery of on-prem and cloud-based applications using AWS services. Recovering recovering into an existing instance allows you to retain metadata and security parameters. Yeah. I mean, just the, the IP reuse alone is a huge advantage for this, right? Like, 
you really had to, you know, like it's, if you automate it, right, it's not that big of a deal to swap out the things, but not everything's easily automatable into an auto scaling group or something that's, you know, more elastic. And so this is, this is pretty fantastic for those like dinosaur workloads where you're like, you want all the, they're important, right? They're probably making the most money in your company, but it's also like, I don't want to make all the application changes that would be required to make it scale. So it's interesting is, that, that, I mean, that you could use this not only for the, for disaster recovery, but also as a really good migration tool as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Like, you know, and so many things are being triggered by those metadata, right? We think about, you know, just network access policies and, and IAM permissions, um, you know, based off of the, the tags and those things. And so like, it's really nice that you can get all that. Cause those are all the, the, like the sort of unknown rough edges of your DR. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the data is there. The application's functional, but I, I can't log into it because it's missing a thing, you know? And it's like, oh yeah. You know, it's just, so the more, the more automation, the more you can sort of reuse that existing construct, which is virtual and no reason why you really can. Um, it's great. Yeah. I can't remember. Didn't they buy somebody or was it Google who bought somebody a couple of years ago, which basically is this. They've, they've all bought someone. <laughs> yeah. DR, yeah. Yeah. Block, block based replication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Uh, new customization capability in Amazon Code Whisperer generates even better suggestions. Now, in preview. So Code Whisperer is a coding companion similar to GitHub Copilot or Google Duet AI. While these tools can help, they lack context of your private code repositories. I mean, except for if you grant GitHub Copilot all the access in the world. And the limitation presents challenges for developers learning to use internal libraries and then avoiding security problems of like internal common code. To address this issue, Code Whisperer customization, it enables organization to customize to generic to generate specific code recommendations from private code repositories. With this features, developers who are part of a professional tier, could now receive real-time code recommendations that include their internal libraries, APIs, packages, classes, and methods. That's nice. Fine-tuning the model for, for your own um, existing sort of ecosystem is, is that's really cool. Yeah. You don't have to retrain the entire model using your internal data in order to get the proper responses, right? That's, that's a pain. That's not going to scale. Um, and so having this, having the AI be able to make recommendations, but then feeding it this customization capabilities on top of that is pretty fantastic. Yeah. I'm, I'm waiting for the day when it doesn't just uh, generate code for you, but it tells you what you could be doing better. Test of the earthquake warning system. No action. Wow, first earthquake interruption for a podcast recording. That's kind of cool. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I think what I'd like to see eventually is, I mean, right now, all the coding tools do what you tell them to do. And the, the, the more accurately you can tell them, the better you can write stories for it, the, the better the code they generate. And I still think we should work on this, this little challenge where we each use one of these tools to, mm-hmm. to try and achieve a goal. I'm kind of excited to, to have a play around with that. But I think what, mm-hmm. what would be cool is you point one of these tools at your repo and, and don't give it any instructions. Uh, around writing a specific piece of code, but like, how could I optimize this? Or what what mm-hmm. features would be better? Or what could I do better? Like ha- having it start to think at more of the architectural level than mm-hmm. the actual coding level, because I think a lot of that would roll down to be better code in the end anyway. Yeah. And it's difficult for an AI, right? Because it's it, those recommendations are awesome, but it requires so much context. And that's why, you know, you have your more senior lead, 
you know, engineers not really contributing code anymore, right? They're largely, those are where the conversations are going. They're just looking at this going, Hey, I got an idea. Why don't you do this? Right. And so it's, you know, like it, you know, it speaks to the concern of like, once we have junior engineers relying solely on AI, who's going to be the senior engineers one day, but, uh, <laughs> uh-oh. but, uh, you know, like hopefully we can adapt and I think we will we typically do. Yeah. And so like, uh, but it's, you know, it's, it being able to feed this data and being able to tweak it makes it, it's making it really a tool that empowers that it's not just a AI experiment to, to money grab type thing. Yeah. I, I, I kind of like the, the analogy that the AI could almost be its own operating system in a way. I mean, you, you kind of go back to the beginning of computers and people were programming in assembly mm-hmm. language or machine code and then or punch cards. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> then, you know, then then higher level languages came along. Um, you know, we got the we got the C's of the world and things like this, and then all the all the people who used to, to do assembly language, like, oh well, you know, you don't understand how the machine works. How can you possibly write good code? And mm-hmm. then when C gets better, and we got Python and Rust, and we got all kinds of different mm-hmm. languages. And I, I kind of wonder if the new language of programming will be um, a, a sort of a different language entirely, where we sort of communicate the intent mm-hmm. and what what we want rather than um, writing code, you know, they mm-hmm. do, 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 what, what places code have, if you can achieve the same goal a different way. Right. And it's, you know, it's funny cause we, we, we sort of poo pooed no code solutions for so long, but um, it's sort of because it missed that sort of element of being able to sort of infer context and add itself to it. Right. You had to drag and drop your little boxes and you had to give it every action and then, quickly with any no code solution I've ever tried, I found that I don't have access to do the thing that I want to do the thing in the right environment for the thing. Um, and it's, you know, but if you can make that, you know, achievable by using AI to infer a lot of context and place things where it needs to be placed and, um, and really understand the requirements, especially during execution time, like that's huge. Right. And so that'll be, it won't even be a language in the way that we're familiar with coding languages, right? It's going to be just a, almost a new interface, like the difference between text files and an IDE. Like it's going to be something I, you know, that I don't think we can even imagine right now. It's pretty sweet. Yeah. I, th- I think all the, the, uh, the QA people have been harping on about unit tests for years. will mm-hmm. will uh, have a, their heyday now, because really, if you think about it, if, if a unit test defines what a system should be doing in terms of inputs and outputs, then all you should have to write is the unit tests mm-hmm. or, and, and then sort of pass that to the AI and say, write me the code that, that makes all these things pass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, and so I've been playing around with the inverse cause you know, that's a common developer. woe is that you write all the code and then you're like, Oh yeah, test. I'll totally do that. I will not do that. Uh, <laughs> as it turns out. Um, but, uh, the, I've been experimenting with, uh, with having AI write the unit tests. Yep. Um, and it really <laughs> helps the development because it'll write the unit test and be like, Oh no, that's, Oh no. It, you know, you'll change the code based on that unit test because the unit test it generates is wrong. Um, but it's not really its fault. <laughs> it's <sort Yeah>. of, <laughs> <I'm> ex- <laughs> you know, it's finding stuff that I would, you know, my code will work in happy path, and, but in a failure mode, it would not. So it's, it's, it's actually working really well that way for me. That's cool. I mean, when I've, mm-hmm. when I've used ChatGPT to write Python modules, I've had it write unit tests to test itself. And obviously mm-hmm. there's some human verification that goes into that, but uh, it's, it's nice to spit out a, you know, a, 
some kind of custom Jakestream module or something, which I've used mm-hmm. recently. And and then also have it write the tests and build those in. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah. It's, it's, it's funny because it's, it's helping me in ways I wasn't predicting, right? It's helping me become a better engineering manager and a better communicator of, of features. And, and cause you, you give it to the computer and it does exactly what you tell it to. You can't get mad at it. <laughs> then it's, yeah. And then it's like, okay, I gotta ask, I gotta give better requirements. I gotta ask better questions. It's, it's, it's pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of exciting times really. Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS, GCP, Azure architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiatives stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, Falcon Consulting. Falcon Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Falcon certified AWS, GCP, and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code, and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPod sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul and they bring their own juice. Okay, uh, on to GCP. The 2023 State of DevOps report uh, says that culture is everything. Uh, bear in mind that Justin wrote the, <laughs> the notes for this. <laughs> <laughs> and caveat, I may or may not agree with some or all or any of, of, of what he says, but this year's report has some very fascinating insights uh, Justin was underwhelmed with last year's report, I think primarily because there was a lot of, of discussion about organizational culture um, rather than the tech side of things. But this year's research explored key outcomes and capabilities that contribute to um, sort of achievement. One is organizational performance. The organization should produce not only revenue, but value for customers as well as for extended community. I, I feel like these should all be kind of no-brainers in a way. Uh, Team performance, the ability for an application or service team to create value, innovate, and collaborate. Uh, Employee well-being, uh, there are strategies that an organization or teams uh, um, can adopt uh, that are beneficial to reduce burnout, foster a satisfying job experience, and increase people's ability to produce valuable outputs. That would be productivity. Um, with really two outcomes as a result of the above. So software delivery performance, teams can safely, quickly, and efficiently change their technology systems and operational performance that the service provides a reliable experience for its users. Uh, One of the more interesting additions this year is the focus on performance outcomes based on types of team, and it broke down into four four types. Uh, User-centric, this type of team focuses on uh, most of the user needs, feature-driven, prioritizes on shipping features with a relentless focus on shipping, uh, but that may distract from delivering on user needs. Uh, Developing is focusing on the need of app users, but still working on a product market fit or technical capabilities. And balanced, a balanced team uh, takes a sustainable approach between organizational performance, good team performance, and job satisfaction. So the net net of the report is that culture and user focus are the keys to success for high-performing organizations. It's one of those things, like I haven't read through the report in detail, but it's like, I do always kind of feel like when I read these, like there's a, there's a lot of like, well, duh, 
kind of reaction to it. Um, and then, you know, like, but then it's also sort of like, it is sort of tailored to, to feels like it's got a little agenda, a little bit more opinionated than I like. Um, yeah, but I agree with it in general, right? Like, like the way, you know, I like structuring work, the way the companies and teams that I want to be a member of that have all these values, right? A lot of agency to those teams so they can self-manage and, and perform. We don't have to go through like nine other teams and get acts of Congress to get their work done. It's, it's a big part of that, of my well being. the, literally my attitude and, and how much effort I want to put in. Cause when I'm frustrated by, Oh, I have to go to another meeting or, or interface with another team just to do a thing. It, it, there's, there's no satisfaction in that. Right. It's, it's difficult. Yeah. So this is, I, I write almost the same thing every year on my, you know, sort of like personal self-review. What what motivates you? What what can we do? You know, what do we need to do to to keep you working hard and that kind of thing? And my my answer is almost invariably, um, as long as you give me the tools I need to do the job you're asking, I will I will happily contribute work forty hours a week or more, as the case may be. But if you don't give me the tools to to be successful, then um, I'll be out. <laughs> yeah and both you and i have had that experience in other companies where that was the case right it was simple little things and it was like nah no i i these aren't big things on their own but through the day there's no getting a task done anymore because of either a security policy or a review that needs to happen or some sort of workflow that needs to be triggered by someone else and like if i can't get that dopamine rush of actually doing a thing I don't want to do this job anymore, right? Like it's yeah. I need that. <laughs> we'll go watch yeah. TikTok videos. <laughs> I I only saw TikTok. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, yeah, it became became too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Actually, I've been, been using a uh, Jira Plan recently, which which I think kind of is a nice tool. It seems like a way to kind of bolt on in a way. The, the way it has to sort of go off and run as extra tasks to sort of go update all the tickets belonging to epics and things but i, I do like it it's it's been um it's given me sort of a, a better overall view of the of the strategy and where i am in the project and what the other dependencies are which i think has been lost in a sort of very flat ticketing system so i'm really really enjoying that as a tool right now and i think it kind of gives like the reports that come out of it seem seem very tailored to be sort of waterfally like reports up to ma- management, so so they can they can get the data they always always liked, yeah. Uh, while people still pretend that they're they're doing agile, so <laughs> it really is the glue right between those two things. Like because we yeah. you know Jira is an agile tool, but it's used primarily for business waterfall tracking, project tracking, and so this is you know it's I feel like Atlassian had to develop this in self defense. Cause I kept getting feature requests largely from the management side of things um, for reporting and visibility of those things. And, and the users don't want to create a waterfall report or figure out all the dependency mappings for the next six months or whatever it would take, you know? And so it's like, this is great. I'm happy for that gap to be filled for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, three weeks. Well, am I excited about it? I think excited is probably not the right word. I'm I'm enjoying having the actual tool available. It makes it so easy to update, you know, yeah. ten stories at the same time or or various things mm-hmm. like that, which would otherwise be kind of slow. And just to see it in context, right? It's you can get, you know, like through Jira boards, you can get a very specific, you know, 
view into your team and sprint. But what your delivery is empowering is not something you can see until you get that larger view of it. So super cool. Yep. All right, getting back on track. Uh, Google mitigated the largest DDoS attack to date, peaking at above 398 million requests per second. Google is back with another massive DDoS attack, uh, backed by Google's cybersecurity teams. It is 7.5 times larger than the largest in-history attack the year before. This new DDoS attack reached a peak of 398 requests per second, as you said, and relied on a novel HTTP slash two rapid reset tonight technique based on stream multiplexing that has affected multiple internet infrastructure companies. By contrast, last year's DDoS attack was 46 million requests per second, which I thought was crazy at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so now it's so nuts. These attacks started in August and are still continuing as, as of this public publication, targeting large infrastructure providers, including Google. Google is able to mitigate the attack at the edge of Google's network, leveraging their investment in edge capacity to ensure that services and customers remain largely unaffected. And Google wants you to know that any enterprise or individual serving of an HTTP-based workload may be at risk from this attack. Web apps, services, and APIs on a server proxy may be able to communicate using the HTTP-2 protocol and be vulnerable. Not so. That is a lot of requests, and, yeah. and um, unusually, th th those those how many million requests was it again? I forget forget the number was that. Three hundred ninety-eight million. That is that's a lot of requests, and it's, I feel like we're kind of entering into the asymmetric warfare phase of of DDoS now because this sure. HTTP two rapid reset exploit is is really asymmetric in that to to attack a server um, requires very little resources on the on the client side anymore using this. Mm -hmm. So the the vulnerability is is, is um, I guess to to explain like how how we get to vulnerability HTTP two uses streams uh, so that previously previously web browsers before HTTP two would have to open a separate connection to the web server you know for parallel transfers one one per connection that was open HTTP two solved that by by um, allowing multiplexing of data in a single TCP connection. And so it's like having multiple connections, but you only have to do the, the key exchange once and the handshake once, and now you've got access to multiple channels of, of uh, communication within a single TCP connection. And what the rapid reset uh, vulnerability is, is that a, a cl client's in full control of these streams. So the, the client can say, open a stream, I want this. Open a stream, I want this. And they can also say, reset the stream, I don't want it anymore. And Usually, servers are configured with a sensible number of concurrent streams per connection. Maybe it's maybe it's a hundred. I think it may be a hundred in Nginx by default um, to stop people from abusing this and, and sort of spamming a server using a single connection. Uh, but what Rapid Reset does is lets a client open a, open a request for a stream and then immediately close it. Open a request, immediately close it. So within the space of a few seconds, you can you can open and close. Uh, these streams, which consume server server resources, and they obviously take time to clean up on the server side. And so, within within a few seconds, you can open tens of thousands of streams and close them again at basically no cost to the client and immense cost to the server. Wow! I mean, that used to be the way we would detect a lot of these vulnerabilities for botnet things. Just like, why is my computer running slow? And so, being able to sort of avoid that level of detection is is crazy. And yeah. So so difficult, such an arms race. Yeah, I mean, th thinking about most most of the uh, the sort of 
legacy tools would have looked at, well, how many, how many connections is this particular client IP opening? And it would be very layer three and four. And um, any, anyone who's still only using those tools instead of any kind of layer seven inspection will be, will be stuck with this because there's only mm-hmm. one connection and it's not yeah. sending much data. It couldn't possibly mm-hmm. be, be, that's, that, that being the culprit for this, this right. attack. Yeah. <laughs> but the servers are on fire. What's, uh, yeah. what's, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one guy, what's he doing? Yeah. yeah. No, it's crazy. I, I'm, I'm not sure what fix they're proposing for this. Um, I mean, I, I, I think putting some kind of controls in place that, that say, you know, clients can only open and close, you know, rate limiting the, the rate at which streams can be opened and closed will be, will be the big one, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you know, Google said they're able to mitigate the attack at the edge. And so it's like, are they, are they inspecting like this traffic and sort of understanding the, the, the number of streams or the type of requests in the streams and being able to sort of null that it's crazy. I mean, or are I, they just like sucking it up? <laughs> like, I guess, I, I guess they could, I mean, at the, the proxy level, they could in, they could say, okay, clients opened a stream, but if it's closed again, they, they introduce a time delay, I guess. A client opens a stream, but if it's closed again within how many milliseconds, we'll discard it and not forward it to the server. And if they open it and send a request, then we'll forward it to the server. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, somebody's still doing work somewhere, but I, I guess the, the resources consumed at the, at the, um, the WAF layer is probably significantly less uh, mm-hmm. than it would be on a server. And, you know, as a user, right, like that's not on the edge. Like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not paying for that compute. I'm not paying for that. It's part of the service is building in. I mean, I'm paying for it through, you know, my subscription to app armor or whatever, have, you know, you have, but yeah. It's pretty interesting uh, vulnerability. I'm surprised it's taken such a long time for anyone to actually uh, exploit it. Mm-hmm. All right, our final story from uh, Google this week, getting to know Systems Insights, a simplified database system monitoring tool. Uh, Slow-running databases are hard to diagnose per Google product designers, Manny HK and uh, Kaushal Agrawal. Is is our SQL saturated? What's consumer resources? What's changed in the database? It's always a change. Other background tasks like (laughs) vacuum or backup operations running and sometimes take some efforts to diagnose, which is why Google have built uh, systems Insights, a database systems monitoring tool that brings together critical metrics, events, and logs to provide a comprehensive view of both the external database performance and the internal system resources, bringing all these signals into a single dashboard that allows you to quickly identify potential sources of problems without having to switch between tools. Single plane of glass, here we come. It's available mm-hmm. for Postgres and Spanner, uh, now in GA and MySQL in preview. They built this due to the friction caused by having to look at metrics on the instance overview page, as well as custom dashboards. They intend to give you a snapshot of system status quickly with pre-built dashboards with actionable metrics. Fantastic. Yeah, one of the, the biggest uh, challenges for a, a lot of teams coming from Microsoft SQL Server using the Postgres is, is vacuum, right? Because it's all of a sudden, you know, it, and it's not something they're used to dealing with. I, I don't know how it's handled in Microsoft SQL Server. I just know that this is a, a common complaint from teams that are making that transition. And they're like, this isn't performing. Why not? And so having the, the insight into that, to have the understanding of, you know, it's an action you're not triggering. The, the engine itself is sort of maintaining its indexes, um, which it needs to do or it would slow to a crawl. Um, so it's great to just have that visibility because once you know about it, right, you can tune it. And you, once you tune it, you can, you can have it go to the right place or you can do whatever you need to do. Or right time, rather. Yep. 
always good. Yeah. All right. Moving on to Azure, which had almost no news. Um, they had a tax story, which Jonathan and I declined um, because it's taxes. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, and the one other thing that is of news is for all of you people still running Windows Server 2012 R2, it has reached the end of support. I know there's at least a few in my ecosystem, so no judgment. <laughs> this this can be hard. <laughs> Hi, my name but, is Ryan, and I still run Server 2012. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> As of October 10th, 2023, Windows Server 2012 R2 has reached end of support. And you can avoid this, of course, by purchasing extended security updates enabled by Azure Arc. If you're on the Azure workloads, if you're not running in Azure, I think you are boned. Uh, migrating to Azure for free extended security updates. Really? That's I didn't know that was an option. Uh, or I, I guess that's the same thing. I'm confused. Probably should have read this one before. But nah. Uh, or modernized to one of its Microsoft platform as a service offering, including Azure SQL Managed Instance or Azure App Service, which I am always a big fan of because running servers is something I don't like doing anymore. So, yeah. PSA concluded. Even more rough. 2012. Yeah. So it's what, what, uh, at least 11 years old this year. Mm-hmm. I think it probably came out in 2011. So I don't know. I, I still see people running Windows XP around the place. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, it's hard. Like if it's working right, don't touch it. And so, like those are things. And then you know, you do want to have support, and you do want to make sure that you're not vulnerable. Um, and so, once once it reaches end support, it's not going to have any of those security updates. It's not going to do that. So it's like that's you have to have the forcing function. Microsoft can't fund the investment of engineering this for till the end of time. And they do a pretty good job, I think, with the length of life and, and the amount of options for extension, because there are extensions you can do not being on the Azure platform. But um, I do think it is kind of clever for them to to make that a feature of the Azure platform, um, you know, as far as being a differentiator. Yeah, I guess they, they have to make it available for money outside, um, but giving away for free inside Azure mm-hmm. is... That, that's- mm-hmm. Well, they're getting their money somewhere, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I think the regulators will go after Microsoft for, for not making those security patches available um, outside Azure at all. So I guess making it paid is kind of, kind of checks mm-hmm. that box. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think there's going to be fewer and fewer reasons not to maintain um, old code at this point now. It, it, you've got Code Whisperer and you've got other AI tools like mm-hmm. go fix this bug in all these code bases. Ten seconds later, you've got the patches. You test them. Mm-hmm. What's uh, you know? Where's where's the need for engineering teams to, to to do that? So I think perhaps it'll be less and less um, deprecation of old software if AI can can keep it up to date. Mm-hmm. Or just you know, like yeah, it's you know, I I think it's like anything. I think engineering teams will be moved to different things that aren't supported well by model constructs, and you know, and quite honestly, like I don't like these tasks where I'm like. It, I need to update from 2012 to whatever the latest is. Like, it's not a fun task to go through and figure out the deltas of what I need to change, what's not to change, and then make changes, test changes. It's high iteration times, sort of thankless. Um, and so I look forward for our new robot overlords doing this for me, for sure. 
Yeah. I mean, it's understandable that people leave until the last minute. It's like, oh, we don't want to test the latest and greatest. It might have bugs that haven't been fixed yet. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it's 11 years later and you're still using <laughs> the old version. And now it's, now it's a terrible emergency. And yes, mm-hmm. indeed, there are, there are problems that you need to resolve. And now you've got three, three weeks to do it instead of, mm-hmm. you know, five years. And it's just so complex when you add in the layers of all the dependencies that you're running and all the differences they have there. Like, um, yeah, it's just, it's gross. I don't want it. I don't want it. Yeah, no, I think we, I think we, I don't want to be, you know, vulnerable, but <laughs> yeah, I think we just treated, we treated software like it was in a, like it was a piece of hardware in a way, you know, you, you buy mm-hmm. a car 70 years ago and you can still put gas in it and start it and it, and it runs, mm-hmm. but software doesn't work the same way. Yeah. It's uh, we, we need, well now cars don't work the so, same way either. You have to have, you have to have software updates in your cars. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. The, the world moves on whether we want it to or not. Yes, it does. All right. I think that was our last story for the week. So it's been a pleasure and I'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions.